All right. <laughs> He's still not sure. Don't come back here. Don't come back. Uh, would you please open your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 21? Matthew 21. Shouldn't be too hard to find. It's the first book in the New Testament. So if you see a bunch of names you don't recognize, it's probably the Old Testament, late in the Old Testament. Keep going till you find the first book, Matthew chapter chapter 21. And the title of this morning's message is Not For Sale. We'll be looking, you see there in your bulletin, the title, and then also the, the first verse of that most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. The day is Sunday, the week of Christ's passion, the week our Lord Jesus went to Jerusalem to be arrested and to suffer and to die for our sins. Jesus and his disciples are making their way into the city, along with many thousands of pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem as well to celebrate the Passover. At the Passover time, nearly half of Israel would be there. Historians estimate that the city of Jerusalem had a population of roughly 30,000 people, but at these high holy seasons, these celebrations, especially Passover, that number swelled to over 180,000 people, filling the temple precinct with pilgrims from all over the land. And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem at a time at which most of Israel is going to see or hear about the events of these days. I want you to notice Jesus was very deliberate in the way he entered the city. His arrival is deliberately dramatic. He intended to provoke a reaction. His triumphal entry on a donkey was premeditated, symbolically, prophetically showing that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the God the Holy Prince of Peace. These plans were preset, according to the Bible, before the foundations of the world, foreshadowed through the prophets of the Old Testament. And if we had more time to study all of Matthew, you'd notice that the first part of Matthew's gospel, the, the account of Jesus' birth, the incarnation of Christ, it's chock full of Old Testament references to show how this was fulfilling prophecy. And then we see the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' healing and teaching ministries throughout Galilee. And then you come to the, the end, that last week. And again, chock full of references to the Old Testament. All deliberate, all planned ahead of time. Now the crowds were looking for a triumphant, nationalistic leader, perhaps even a warrior, king. Jesus enters Jerusalem in peace. Not on a great stallion, but on a beast of burden. His war will be fought and won on Friday at Calvary. And so he's entering the city, showing that he claimed to be the Messiah, the servant king. That's the first great sign that we celebrate at Palm Sunday. But the second is equally important. Because when he comes into the city, he heads straight for the temple courts. The temple, the center of Judaism, the focal point of Hebrew commerce and culture, worship and life. He is once again telling us of the significance of his coming 
and of his suffering and of his death before it actually happens. He is the king of the city, God's city, and he is the king of the temple. And in the city, he finds crowds cheering. And we've read about that, and we saw what happened with them laying their cloaks down and, and waving uh, branches. But what will he find when he enters the temple? Let's find out. Listen as I read Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. And Jesus, entering the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so, Lord, as we see this account of what happened on Palm Sunday, we try to make sense of, Lord, what, what was happening there and happening even here we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our time, Lord, speak through me, arrest our hearts, arrest our distractions of cell phones and plans for the afternoon, help us to be here, present in this hour, and Lord, may the humble, simple words I've prepared and the meditation of my heart be wholly acceptable to you, we pray, amen. So Jesus declares that the temple is my house, and the praise is for him. He's asserting himself to be the divine king of the temple. So I want us to imagine that we are there. And that's not too hard to imagine, because now in the new covenant, the church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God. So that shouldn't be too hard of a picture for us to imagine. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22 says, Christ followers join together, grow into a holy temple in the Lord. They're built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. So it shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine what the scene looked like because the question before us is, what sort of people does Jesus encounter? What sort of people did he encounter in the temple? What sort of people does Jesus encounter in his church? So let's look at each. There are four. Let's look at the four encounters of King Jesus has in the temple. The four reactions, this is if you're taking notes, the four people he encounters, the four reactions of King Jesus, and then the four takeaways. And, and so that there's uh, a clear dead giveaway, I'll tell you what my four application points are in four words 
prayer, evangelism, Bible, and praise. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down, prayer, evangelism, Bible, praise, and then you can check out for the next 20 minutes and chime right back in for the giveaways. Who does Jesus first meet? First people that he meets are unbelievers. And he's not surprised at all that they're there. Unbelievers. Let's take a step back. Remember what's happening. People are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. God's deliverance of his people through his mediator Moses. Provisions were being made for the pilgrims to purchase animals and birds for a sacrifice, to pay a debt of their sin. And in, the, in that region, there were money changers there in the temple courts to exchange the pilgrims' uh, Roman currency for the Tyrene uh, coins, which was a special currency that was the only kind of currency accepted uh, in the temple to pay your temple tax. That's right, there was a tax to come into the temple. So you can see the, the state and religion very, very cozy together in Judaism. So there were money changers, and there were people selling these, these animals for a sacrifice. Now, Jesus comes in, in a way, looking for a fight, it seems like. But I don't think he was against the practice in principle, this practice of, of selling of sacrificial animals. It's actually laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. Merchants were there working to installs. They were selling animals as a helpful service for pilgrims. Imagine if you were a pilgrim and you had a long way to travel. Would you want to lug an animal or a pigeon all the way from wherever you live? You keep feeding it. Can we keep, keep it alive? I got to get to Jerusalem. No, that was, that was not the problem. Here's the problem. Historians have found through rabbinic sources that say that around this time, Caiaphas, the high priest, Caiaphas, had recently moved the trade of sacrificial animals, and these were not the highest quality of animals, by the way, and these were probably being sold at an exuberant markup as well. But he had moved that sale from the, the Kidron Valley, which is where the Mount of Olives is. That's where Jesus teaches his final times, so the, the Olivet Discourses, Matthew 24 and 25. You can read that on your own. This is the area where the Garden of Gethsemane is as well. This is where Jesus ascended to heaven. That's all in that valley. But the high priest Caiaphas moved the sale of those animals into the temple courts. And he moved them into the court that was reserved for the God-fearing Gentiles to pray. So the very place that was designed for people to come from all the nations to come to pray to God, was filled with commerce. So I think Jesus wasn't against the practice in principle, but he was furious at the sellers and the buyers because they were misusing his house. There are people who do not believe in Jesus who are very comfortable in Jesus' house. In truth, they can make a whole career working in Jesus' house, and he's not surprised that they're there. There are whole churches, in fact, that are designed to provide for the consumer looking for some spiritual food, consumer Christianity. They cater to the demands of a busy consumer, 
and they peddle in cheap grace. My favorite new restaurant in town is Cafe Rio. Has anyone been there? Raise your hand. Three people have been there. Really? Okay. Quiet. Okay, thank you. Yes. Awesome Mexican food. Fast, quick, fantastic. And what I love about Cafe Rio is they give you a card, and if you, get, uh, if you buy your burrito or you get your tacos or what have you, every time you purchase, they uh, poke a little hole in that card. So every 10 times that I go, I know when I have all those holes, I get free food. Very motivating to go to a restaurant when you know every time you buy some food, you're going to get a little hole punched in that card, and then you come back, and in 10 times, free food, free food. Well, unfortunately, some in the church adopt the same kind of mentality. Just keep coming. We'll serve you. We'll click your your card and keep coming. You're going to get a special reward in just 10 easy payments. To be kind, they they lack a a biblical ecclesiology. That's the, the, the nature of the church. They're missing out on what Jesus has designed for us. The church is first and foremost a house of prayer, not a marketplace, not a social club. Things that are acceptable at at certain times, to be sure, become unacceptable in the church when they crowd out the intended mission, which is prayer and the making of disciples, the welcoming in of pilgrims who want to know God. Second, he finds the afflicted. He finds the afflicted. Do we have any afflicted here? Anyone afflicted in this room? Well, those kinds of people were not welcomed in the temple. Perhaps in certain designated areas out of the way, but the temple is no place for afflicted, for sinners, for people struggling or afflicted with with disease. And, and don't we all know that they probably have that disease by their own fault? They probably deserve it. Or so thought the chief priests and the scribes that didn't want those people in that place. But Jesus is the great physician. And Jesus has an appointment for the afflicted. And while Moses could only provide guidelines to contain, try and mitigate the the spread of disease and and keep them out, Jesus knows he has come for such as these. He has come to heal. He knows they are in the right place. And that's why we know the church is a hospital for sinners. The wretched, as we have from Amazing Grace, the lost, the blind, are welcomed into the house of the healer. Third, who does he find? He finds the self-righteous. And Jesus is not surprised that the self-righteous are in his house. The chief priests and the scribes are running the show. They are running things at the temple. They see him, they know what he can do, but they could not interpret the wonders performed by Christ. They could not see God's holiness in Jesus' reaction to the merchants and casting them out. And they cannot see God's grace in his miracles of reaching out to the afflicted to heal them. Oh, what is he doing? Why is he touching them? They miss it. They miss it. But they are the self-righteous. 
These are people who do not need a savior. They don't want to see or listen. They have a bone to pick with Jesus and his disciples, first for shouting out in the streets. They are a very proud people. They know how things are meant to be. They have a stake that's claimed in that temple. It's theirs. They are in charge. They know how things are supposed to run. And these scribes and Pharisees, these priests, react to the children coming into the court with indignation. They are furious that these children are praising God. And Jesus says to them what? Have you not read Psalm 8 too? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praises. Well, those are the people that Jesus meets there. Who else does he encounter? One final group. He encounters genuine disciples. On Palm Sunday, it was children. The next generation, little ones, babies, rugrats, teens, praising God, having a ball, many of whom would live to see the day in 70 AD when that temple would be utterly destroyed, as Jesus said would happen. That's who he finds in his house. And we can imagine he found genuine disciples among both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles there too. Perhaps the parents of those children said, so we got to go see Jesus. Let's go into the temple. Men and women who had been healed, who had heard Jesus' teachings, who had witnessed his miracles, they're all there to praise. Psalm 118, Hosanna, save us now, O Lord. Now, how does the king react to each of these four encounters? What can we expect from King Jesus when he encounters people in the church? What has the unbeliever to expect, someone who does not believe in Jesus, what can they expect when they come to his house? Well, there are a lot of better ways to spend a Sunday morning than coming to church if you're not a Christian. Hands down, if I was not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would be down uh, looking at the cherry blossoms. Far nicer to be there than, I love you, you're great, but if, but if, if I wasn't a Christian, why, why would you come to church? All that standing up and sitting down and, oh, far better things to do with your time. And there are plenty of churches who want to apologize that they're intruding on your weekend. So come, we're going to make it as fun as we possibly can. But in a church that is gospel-driven, that wants to share God's message of grace and salvation, the unrepentant person, the person who's not seeking, who's just coming, can expect, wait for it, they can expect violent upheaval in their life. Jesus flipping things upside down in their life or right side up. I told a story in the first service about someone I renamed Mark. We tell a different story about a different person. I'm going to call him Mark as well. That's just going to be my, my name for anonymous friends. This is a friend, Mark, who came, came to the church uh, started attending with his girlfriend, said he had grown up in the church, really wanted uh, his girlfriend to also go to church. Uh, they were living together in South Minneapolis. Uh, they broke up within a couple of months, and he came broken and confused and upset, came each Sunday. I said, how are you doing, Mark? He just, I, I don't know. I, I just feel, I feel really weird inside. That's not the best way to end a service like you're shaking people's hands. How are you doing? Great. Oh, great, great sermon. I feel weird inside. 
Okay. But God was doing a work in his life. Fast forward three months, Mark's life was completely transformed. He gave his life to Jesus. He came in on a Sunday. He had emptied his entire savings account and brought it and wanted to give a testimony and say, I, I've been holding back from the Lord. I've not been honoring him with my life. And so I want to give everything I have to Jesus. Now, some people would say, Mark is crazy. Others would say he got his life straightened out. Now he's happily married, performed that wedding. Where were Thunder Bay, someplace, like way, way up north. Now, now if he's listening, now he knows, wait, that's not Mark, that's me. <laughs> God will transform and turn the tables. One of my favorite quotes from this week was from a uh, pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He's talking about sharing good news, and he said, if you want to magnify grace, which this sermon really is about, friends, he says, if you want to magnify grace without truth, you will shrink both. What does Jesus do with a church whose priorities are, screwed, are, are, are skewed? What will he do with that church? Jesus' reaction to that church will be to flip the tables, to scatter the money changers, to evict them from the church designed to do something entirely different. Even though no one's complaining, even though no one is bothered, except Jesus, he says, this is to be a holy house of prayer. He quotes Isaiah 56, and then he adds Jeremiah 7, 11, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Friends, God's grace is not for sale. Those who are not admonished, who, who ignore the warnings, are inviting God's judgment. But what can the afflicted sinner expect to experience? Sure, they have problems. They know they have problems. You can see it on their face. You can hopefully see it on all of our faces. And that's what he gives them. He gives them healing. They need healing, and that's what he gives to them. He's the only one who can heal. Jesus alone reaches out in love and healing power and touches the afflicted sinner and makes them whole again. That's exactly what a sinner can expect in the church. You see, we cannot have amazing grace if we do not know our need. You can be saved in an instant, right where you're sitting, and then live your life trying to make sense of this life, working out your faith in the church together. That's what he wants. Our sin is a debt. It's a crime against God. It cannot be paid off for time well served. There's no number of service hours or good deeds that can expunge your record. It's terminal. It's only by faith through grace alone. And that's what Jesus offers. Anyone willing to come and say, I messed up. I need help. And what can the self-righteous expect? Well, in an, in an ingrown church, you can expect, if you are self-righteous in the ingrown church, you could probably expect to be a leader in that church. You might be standing in the pulpit in that church. And friends, I'll be the first to admit, I have tendencies of being self-righteous and full of myself, being like the older brother. But when the self-righteous person encounters Jesus, well, by God's mercy, what do they get? They get God's word. 
Jesus quotes scripture at the priests and the scribes. Scripture that not only proves Jesus' claims, but they reveal his person and his work. And so when we read scripture, our understanding of God is changed according to the word, not according to our custom interpretation. We don't say, well, this is what I think. This is how I feel. We look at God's word and say, this is what has been said by God, revealed. I'll tell you, there's nothing more sweet than the celebration in heaven when a sinner repents. Doubly so when someone who's self-righteous, when that older brother kind who thinks they have it all together repents and says, Lord, I need you to be my savior. Well, so then there's the uh, self-righteous person. There's the person who needs healing. There's the unbeliever. And finally, what can the true disciple, a saved sinner, expect when he encounters Jesus? Jesus welcomed the children. He welcomed the babies. All of them were coming to praise God. His words were sweet to them, and their praises were sweet to him. The true believer can expect Jesus to defend them, and they can expect Jesus to kick out the peddlers of cheap grace and to make room for them to commune with God and to have union with Christ. Okay, so four takeaways. Do you remember my four points? Number one, Nielsville, we are to care more about prayer than about the business of the church. That's what an ingrown operational institution puts first, the business and not the prayer. Ryan and I returned from a conference in Louisville. We got home late. Uh, uh, we had session meeting Thursday night. I called the elders. I'm so sorry. It starts at 7. I'm going to be late. I got there at 8.30. A lot of things to talk about. We're behind in our budget. There's real work to be done. And those things will be set in priority to communicate with the congregation, to look at the budget, all those things, absolutely. But you know the first thing that the elders did? They prayed. And more than that, more than just a perfunctory, well, it's open in prayer. No, they came up with a plan. They spent time to strategize and plan. How are we going to get more prayer into the life of the church? Let's start with us. Let's start praying before every worship service together the uh, 11 o'clock service. Let's pray in Pastor Pete's office or in the conference room. That's where our priority ought to be. In your own life, let me say this, friends. You are too busy not to pray. You have so much on your plate. You're so busy. So many text messages to respond to. So many emails. It's springtime. It's beautiful. You got to get to the home store. You got to get going. You are too busy not to pray. To take time, even today, to pray to the Lord and make that a priority this week. Number two, evangelism. Jesus healed the blind. He healed the lame. These are not fairy tale stories. These actually happened. Therefore, pointing to the real presence of his kingdom coming. Remember, his message was repent for the kingdom is here. If you believe that Jesus can heal, that he is the only mediator and redeemer, we got to tell somebody. We got to tell somebody. We got to know why we believe it and we got to live it out. I've got five men in my life that I want to share desperately, got to share with them who Jesus is. 
And I dance around. Other guys in the neighborhood, we kind of talk a little bit. We joke about being a pastor and all that. Well, yesterday, I got a hold of one of them. So if you're listening, Mark, you know, this is you. No more dancing around. I'm taking a cue from one of our speakers that Ryan and I heard. I said, Mark, we're going to do this. I'm a pastor. We're going to do this. I got to share with you the greatest news in the world. It's changed my life. And because this neighbor knows me and knows that I love him and his family, his kids call me Uncle Pete and, and Aunt Cheryl, we, we have a relationship. I was able to share the gospel. And friends, in the coming weeks, I want to hear your testimony from this platform or over there. We're going to have testimonies to share and sharing the good news. And I'd like to invite you to invite friends to come to church next Sunday in the weeks to come. Okay, three. Point three, do you remember what it was? One word, two syllables. Sounds like it's a, it's a, it's a book. The Bible. The only remedy for the self-righteous attitudes that we must all confess we have pride right here, feeling at times superior. Uh, yep, that, uh, two thumbs, that's me. We need to confess that, be willing to let go of that, and to trust the Lord. And to take our cue from Jesus in this passage, we have to get God's word into our life. My friends, you have to get God's word into your life. I implore with you, get God's word into your life every day, every day, feeding on his word. We need to step out big time, Nielsville. The elders are talking about planning new small groups, maybe a 10-week, maybe a six-week time where we get the entire church to engage together. There's, there's no time like the present. And the stakes are too high for us not to know what we believe and why we believe it. And finally, finally praise. We are rehearsing for heaven. 10,000 years, right? We'll be there. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again, and there isn't going to be any symbolism. It's going to get very real. He's coming again, and Jesus demands a response. And the only fitting response is for us to bend the knee to the king and stand to praise him. To bend the knee to the king and to stand to praise him. If you've been changed by God's grace and you thank God for saving you, for his grace that came and saved a sinner like you, like me, then the only proper response is to bend the knee and to stand to praise him. That means you start by laying down whatever you value so much more. Maybe it's your coat. Maybe it's a palm branch. You lay it down for the king. What do you have that needs to be laid down? What have been saving money for? You realize, I'm putting my priorities in the wrong place. What are the things in your life that take such a precedence over your relationship with God and the people he's put into your life that you realize, I need to lay this down, get my priorities straight. I, I want to bend my knee to the king and stand to praise him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton, a one-time slave boat runner, turned evangelist, gave up everything for the sake of his king. And on that last day, only those who embrace him, bow the knee, lay down everything before him, praise him, only they will find the sweet blessings and eternal salvation that he came to die for. 
May God help us to choose this day. Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Lord, we bend our knee to you now. Lord, as people come to Nielsville, people that are spiritually curious, trying to find their way, they're here for a reason. They're meant to be here. But God, arrest our hearts. Maybe there's someone here who's frustrated and feeling stirred up. Maybe this is your spirit working in their heart. Maybe, Lord, you are healing someone today that needs to be touched by your healing hand. Maybe, Lord, we're being convicted of our own uh, self-righteousness, our arrogance of thinking that we know so much and we need to turn to you and to your word. And maybe, Lord, we need to loosen up and praise you like kids praise you, just unabashed, unashamed, open-hearted. Help us to do all these things through faith by grace, we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, please stand and let's sing together Grace Greater Than Our Sin. It's printed in your bulletin. Thank you.